Anne Patchett is one of the world's finest novelists. She's, uh, I've certainly read every book she's ever written, and I am absolutely thrilled that she's going to be here tonight. Her new book, called The Dutch House, uh, is not quite out, but we've got it here tonight, and we've got lots of signed copies, and Anne will be signing more copies afterwards. Um, we're also thrilled that she's going to be joined on stage by Mariella Frostrup, who, as everybody knows, presents Open Book, on the BBC and does also the wonderful painting series and that great series about bringing up Britain. Anne Patchett probably commands more respect than any other writer, I think, in the world of the type of fiction she does. It's incredibly moving, it's spot on, it's, um, it's about our lives, it's about our family lives. And this new book, I have to tell you, does not disappoint. So with no further ado, do please give a huge welcome to Anne Patchett and Mariella Frostrup. Good evening. Welcome, Anne. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I, I did sort of write a little introduction, so I thought, why waste it, having spent the time right, doing right. it? Although that um, one was going to be hard to top. That it's was going really to be good. very difficult to top, and it, mine starts, of course, not with a cliche at all, saying tonight's guest needs little introduction. <laughs> but I've obviously decided to give one. Um, her fans are boundless, and their devotion never-ending. I'm sure all of you will agree with that. In a series of seven novels and a, uh, a smattering of non-fictions, she seems to have conquered the universe. From Orange Prize winner Belcanto to her essays on life uh, in This is the Story of a Happy Marriage, she's seduced us all with uplifting tales of human potential that are never saccharine or misjudged. Relationships, in particular family and friendships, are her natural habitat, and the Dutch house, her latest, is no exception. It traces the turbulent lives of two siblings, Danny and Maeve, through abandonment by their mother, the death of their father, and their betrayal by an evil stepmother. So you probably don't have to read it now. No, <laughs> there are no spoilers there, seriously. Um, but really, uh, it looks at empathy, avarice, memory, and ultimately, it's all about love, but then what isn't in the end? Um, and, and I wondered maybe if we should start by just talking a little bit about the Dutch house of the title, because it is an enormous edifice uh, that's built around your story. Uh, did it come to you first? Can I, can I just say one thing? How odd it is to have people say such incredibly over-the-top nice things about me <laughs> on Margaret Atwood's pub day. <laughs> yes! I, I mean, I am so excited to be reading that book. Um, so it's kind of comical that you're here when you could be home reading Margaret Atwood. Thank you very much. But of uh, course, if I'd used that introduction to introduce Margaret Atwood, there'd be a lot of people scratching their heads here. <laughs> Empathy. Oh, 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 right. It's all about love. love. Right, right. You, actually, we're looking at this sign over your head that says God is love. So <laughs> let's just start there. Yeah, just in case you were wondering, 
There it is. All right. Yeah, go on. The tell house. me a little bit about the I'll house. I'll tell you a little bit Did about the house. Did you have a dream? You woke up, you saw the house, you thought, I must put people in it, off I go. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely if that was the way it worked? No, um, I wanted to originally, it's very hard to explain this. People say, where did the idea start? Where the idea starts, I have no problem telling you that, but it doesn't necessarily have a great connection to where the idea ends up. So um, it started in part with the election of Trump um, and the idea that we were caught up in this massive celebration of wealth and uh, in, in my very sad country, which you can feel good about because it's the only country that's sadder than your country right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're relying on you. We're really <laughs> neck and neck, but I still feel the Americans are a little bit out ahead. Um, okay, so I wanted to write a book about someone who didn't want to be rich. That was the original idea. Uh, and so I thought about a, a man who is quite poor, he and his wife are very poor, and then he makes a lot of money and he doesn't tell his wife about it because he's not certain, and this is happening at the end of the Second World War, he's, he's in disbelief, he doesn't think it's gonna last, but he finally amasses quite a tidy sum and he buys an enormous mansion to give to his wife because he loves her. And his wife, who is poor and has always been poor and has come from poor people, is profoundly horrified. So that's, that's how I got to the house. I didn't think, I want to write a book about a really great house. It is house as symbol. Um, and so I made up a house. There is no Dutch house. Somebody said to me the other day, why is it Dutch? And I said, if you think about it, it could be the English house, the Swedish house, the Italian house, the Russian house. Well, actually, there already was a book called The, Russian, the Russia House, uh, the Norwegian house, whatever. Nothing sounds as good. The Dutch house, same number of letters in Dutch and house. Looks nice on the jacket. Uh, <laughs> She's really so deep. <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> that's right. I, no, I own a bookshop. I really do think about these things. Will you remember it? How does it sound? How many letters are in the title? What kind of an anagram would it turn into later on? Um, so what I did is I just took certain elements from different fabulous houses I've been in in my life and stuck them together. But the, the trick is to not give too many elements because what I want is for you to imagine the best house you've ever seen, the house that you swooned over when you were a kid or went to at a party and thought, who lives like this? Um, and Let's offer them some triggers right. for their imaginations. Exactly. On page nine. Oh, yes, <laughs> me, right, page nine. I'm up uh, but this. you can borrow mine if you want. Let's see if I can find page nine. My friend Ross. It's just a little taster because we're going to be talking a lot about the Dutch house, so it'd be quite nice for you to have a picture of it in your mind. All right. The Dutch house, as it came to be known in Elkins Park and Jenkintown and Glenside and all the way to Philadelphia, referred not to the house's architecture, but to its inhabitants. The Dutch house was the place where those Dutch people with the unpronounceable name lived. Seen from certain vantage points of distance, it appeared to float several inches above the hill it sat on. The panes of glass that surrounded the glass front doors were as big as storefront windows and held in place by wrought iron vines. 
The windows both took in the sun and reflected it back across the wide lawn. Maybe it was neoclassical, though with a simplicity in the lines that came closer to Mediterranean or French. And while it was not Dutch, the blue Delft mantles in the drawing room, library, and master bedroom were said to have been pried out of a castle in Utrecht and sold to the Van Hobakes to pay a prince's gambling debts. The house, complete with the mantles, had been finished in 1922. Let me ask you a question. How do you pronounce that word? <laughs> oh, I was going to talk to you about that earlier. <laughs> I've, I've, Utrecht. Utrecht. Well, now we know. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been nice if I had asked you before the reading? It's the only Dutch word I know. Utrecht is yeah. the only Dutch word. <laughs> I've no idea. I mean, like, anyway. Does it come in handy very often? <laughs> Everyone can say Rotterdam, but Utrecht I always am quite proud of. And there's probably somebody Dutch in the audience who knows how to pronounce it properly. I'm just, I've just said that very confidently. Oh, wait, there's a hand. Yes. <laughs> no, no. <I> <laughs> Like that other Nijmegen, whatever it's The called. thing about, you know, saying that in Nashville, there are no Dutch people in the audience. You can get away with Blue Murder. Anything. Yeah, anything. well, you're here now, yes. and we're really fussy about that sort of detail. Um, the, the house is a thing of beauty, but it acts as a repressive force as well sure. for some of the inhabitants. And in particular, and because she departs quite early in the book, why don't we talk about Elna Conroy, first of all? How she's because good. She is a typical, in a way, character for you in that she presents complications for us as readers. Um, it's very easy to judge her. She abandons her children and goes to look after the poor. And your instant reaction is, what's wrong with her? Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I wrote this book twice. I wrote it once and twice. I... Twice. Twice. Okay. Um, which I'd never done before. Uh, I wrote this book, I finished it, I got to the end, I read it, and it was so bad it took my breath away. Um, like I was kind of moved to know that in my middle 50s I could still write such a bad book. And, um, <laughs> Had no, you ever written such a bad book before? No, no, no. I mean, I've written bad things, but I'd never written an entire 330-page bad book. And... Um, while I was reading it, I kept thinking in my mind, I've just got to get to the end, and then I'll give it to my friend Miley Malloy, because she is such a fantastic editor. She's one of my first readers. She'll be able to tell me how to fix it. But, and this is the worst part of it, I was 10 pages from the end, and I couldn't finish it. It was that bad. <laughs> like, I wrote it, and I couldn't even get to the last 10 pages. And I threw the whole thing away, and several people said to me, but what if you were wrong? What if it wasn't bad? But I wasn't wrong. It was horrible. <laughs> and um, now I've completely lost my Well, we were talking point. about, don't you worry, because it was a great anecdote, the fact that you couldn't oh, get oh, no, to the no, end no, of no, your no, own I remember, book. I remember, Elna. Elna. Okay, so originally, it really was a story about Elna nobly embracing poverty and altruism. And that oh, she... That's bad. See? Yeah. <laughs> See? Because she has a higher calling, and she leaves the wealth, she leaves the mansion, and she leaves her kids to go and do this great thing. So when I finished the bad book and threw it away and started it over again, and had a lot of trouble starting it over again, but finally did, and one of the things that I did was I sat down, literally just sat down on the floor and closed my eyes, 
and I know my neighbors. I live on a street where the houses are pretty close together. And I just went all the way up and down the street, and I thought of each of the mothers on the street. I don't have children. And I pictured their children, and I pictured the mother leaving them for no other reason but that she wanted to go and help the poor. It did not fly. It did not feel good. I did not feel good about these women that I know when I pictured them leaving their children. But then, of course, the flip side is men can, and then we sing about them for all eternity. I must explore. I must go on an odyssey. Odysseus, <laughs> Siddhartha. We love him for leaving his son and going to live with the poor. And so I just really, truly got that flipped the first time. I really didn't understand that what a man could do, in this case, a woman could not do, and not be judged to death. Uh, and so what I needed to do was not only rethink her, but also to, to judge her. And I don't mean in some punitive way, but because truly, when I imagined Whitney Fuller, who lives four houses down the street from me, leaving little Wynne and Claire on their own, I judged her with hatred. Have you seen her since? Have I what? Have you seen her since? Oh, Whitney? oh Whitney, I see her all the time. She's the best mother in the world. She would never leave her girls. Good, so right. you managed to I overcome the it. hurdle of imagining I that. I got through it, but it is a really interesting question. Why is it all right for men? I mean, not all right, we don't love it, but you know, go to war, go to conquer, go to... I'm not making excuses. Please do. But I suppose because historically women have been the ones who have stayed at home and nurtured and breastfed and, you know, done right. all of those things. So there is something that feels much more extreme. Men have always gone out and yes. fought the good fight and brought home the bacon. But somehow as a modern woman, I liked the idea of rewriting that scenario. And I wrote it and it failed. No, no, but it doesn't fail oh, in the no, book now. Oh, but no, you didn't now. read it the first time. No. The first time but, it failed. But now it really works because what it does is it leaves you asking questions about Elna, but it also sets the scene for these two siblings, Danny and Maeve, to grow up together initially in this vast and beautiful house with Maeve taking on the sort of maternal role right. with Danny. So... Sibling relationships are not a new area for your forensic gaze. Why have you gone back to that relationship and what was it about their relationship that interested you? I think that sometimes when I do something in one book, I get sort of stuck on it. I don't feel like I've gone as deeply as I wanted to go. And so when I wrote Run, that was a book about siblings who were adopted and what were their feelings and responsibilities to one another. And I was really interested in that. And I wrote Commonwealth, which is about step-siblings and how they work together. And the thing that I enjoyed most in Commonwealth were the scenes in which one stepbrother and stepsister were together. And so I thought, well, now I want to write a book about a brother and a sister. And I think, and I really haven't thought about this until this book, um, the thing that I have failed to do in my body of work is write about romantic love. And so I'm thinking about relationships that are extremely close and permanent and not romantic. So maybe now I'll give that a shot, I don't know. But you've written so much 
about siblings and family relationships that you must have asked yourself why it is that that's your groove. You know, everybody's got a groove. I've got several um, of just things that I keep coming back to. I don't mean to. I don't sit down and think, now I'm going to write another book about siblings. But there's something about the fact that you can't escape your family. You can leave your religion, you can leave your marriage, you can leave your country. But your, your family, even if you just hate them and you say, oh, right, enough, never again, I'm never coming home, something happens and you do go back, you know? You're, you're really stuck with your family. And, and that's, that's just such fertile ground for a novelist because you've, you've closed all the doors. What are you going to do? And I think that even when I don't write about siblings, I do write about situations in which people are trapped. Maybe they're trapped situationally the way they are in Belcanto or the way they are in Patron Saint of Liars, but maybe they are trapped psychologically I cannot escape these people. Gosh, this is feeling like therapy. This is good. <laughs> well, now we're going to go deeper, Anne. <laughs> um, judging by Commonwealth, I'm coming back to the Duchess, you're, uh, which was the first time that you'd actually mined your own history um, as much as you cared to um, in terms of writing a novel. Yours was a, a pretty complicated childhood, uh, very peripatetic, your parents split up, you had lots of step-siblings yourself. So clearly, you know, your own experience has informed to some extent your interest and, and why you keep writing about it. And you've chosen not to have children, all of which is very interesting to me because of the fact that it's the subject you return to. And I know I had a very similar childhood to yours in the divorcing and the moving around. And until I got to about 38, which was, you know, leaving it perilously close. I didn't have children because I thought, why would I want to... Being a child was the worst experience yes. I'd had, yes. you know, today. And I thought, why would I want to bring children into this world to have to be children? Oh, that's so interesting. You're the only other person I've ever met who said that. I really? say that all the time. But is, that's, is that, that why? That's what I was going to ask that you. That childhood is something I wouldn't inflict on someone I love. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's really great. That's so, so did, you, did you have children? Yes, I did. I mean, that's why I'm saying I left perilously close, and at 38, I suddenly thought, damn, I forgot to have children, like that postcard, you know, that used to be around and in the 90s. And how did it work out? It worked out pretty good. I mean, I'm hoping their experience is slightly better than mine was. It could hardly be... Well, it could be a lot worse, in fairness. Sure, of It could course. be a lot worse. Of course. But, but you know, it's, it's better. You should have tried it. No, no, you no, know. no, 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 no. <laughs> but, but, but was that why you haven't had children? And no. is that why you keep looking at that relationship? You know, I didn't have children because I didn't want children. And I've never for one second of my life wanted children. And I've never wrestled with it or questioned it. It's not there. There, mm. is, there is something missing in my brain that doesn't exist. But you don't have an idyllic view of childhood either. You, you see it as a, a bad time rather than, or a difficult time well, rather than a positive you know, a time. Lot of, a lot of kids have fun. Um, Commonwealth, they had some real fun. Um, no, you know, my sister and I have talked about this. My sister really wanted children and she had children. And I always say if we were walking down the street and someone came up with a stroller, 
Heather would look in the stroller and I would cross the street. If somebody was walking up the street with a dog, I would kneel down and be like, puppy. Um, and I was that way from beyond memory. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worried about it. It's, it's just, it wasn't there. It was a good thing. I guess while we're just on the subject of, of writing about, you know, your own experience, um, I know Commonwealth was, was a big hurdle for you in a way because it was, it was something that you hadn't wanted to do and then you felt, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, that you felt then compelled to, that somehow you must address your own experience in fiction, obviously. Well, and the reason that I did that is because I had written a book of essays called This is the Story of a Happy Marriage, <clears throat> which were really personal. And they hadn't seemed so personal when I was writing them one at a time, but they seemed incredibly personal when I put them all together. <coughs> Excuse me. And no one in my family cared. So I, I showed them all the, the manuscript of the book. Is this upsetting? Do you not want me to publish this? And everybody was like, really? That's the best you've got? That, I mean, <laughs> we know we got divorced. We don't, you're not breaking any news here. And so I, I really talked to everyone in my family. I said, well, what if I wrote a novel about not our childhood, but the kind of childhood we had, the kind of life that time? And everybody said, yeah, fine. You know, we... Love you, we support what you do. And so that was really it. It was, it was as if I was protecting them from something that they didn't feel the need to be protected from. And so I thought, well, it would be interesting to do this, to write the kind of book that everybody else writes at 26, to write it at 50. Um, and and I, I really enjoyed it. Commonwealth was so easy and so much fun for me to write. Do you think you would have done it if they hadn't been so keen, because it, oh, I it, wouldn't have done it. Really? So you you don't believe in the kind of writer's prerogative to mine their lives in any way they you know what? see the, the, fit? It's, it, you can always do it. You just put costumes and and different sets and throw a few sheep in, and you know, it, it's just you've just got to mix it up, and so they don't feel like it's them. Um, a friend of mine once said you could write about anyone as long as you make them better looking than they actually are. <laughs> and, and I think that that's really true. I want to circle back and say something. I want uh, to circle back and talk about Danny. Okay, but can I say yeah. something about children it's first? Your, it's your evening. You can say anything you like. Um, it always happens. I always wish I had a notepad when I'm having these conversations. No, I don't. That's fine. Because things come to me. But I want to say I wrote a children's book. Um, called Lambslide, and it came out last spring because I'm, I met this woman in my bookshop named Robin Price Glasser, who's an illustrator, and she did the Fancy Nancy series. Is Fancy Nancy a thing over here? No, but you know, there's a, no, big, oh there's a big division between okay. the books that are popular in America. But I never like, understand it. There are like those. 80 million copies of Fancy Nancy in print. I'm not joking. Um, and there's 60 different Fancy Nancys and Fancy Nancy is now a Disney series, and it has part of the Disneyland theme park. It is a huge deal. And so Robin, the illustrator, was in my shop on tour for the last Fancy Nancy, and she asked if I would write a children's book for her to illustrate. Just to cut to the chase, I did. I wrote many. I am wildly in love with Robin Price Glasser, and the joy that I feel going around with her, having a collaboration has been fantastic. So, I, and now I went on book tour for five-year-olds, right? Right? Like, I am somebody 
who isn't comfortable with children, put me in an Alzheimer's unit, I am unbelievably good. Put me in the kindergarten, I start to sweat and shake. So Robin and I go on tour. It's so fantastic because I watch her interact with these children and she just, she just grabs them up and pulls their shirts up and, and like blubbers on their stomach. And, <laughs> and when they're crying, she says, can I draw, but, draw butterflies on your arms? And she takes a permanent Sharpie on, on a weeping child and she draws butterflies all up and down their arms. And 100% of the time, it thrills them. I, I never had seen anyone with children the way Robin Price Glasser is with children. Just picking up strange children and kissing them until they <laughs> scream. Um, and with joy, with wonder. And also, you know, we're doing these big events. No one in this audience has come to see Ann Patchett. They have no idea who Ann Patchett is. They've all come to see Robin. And I'm just, I'm just the gal with the chicken puppet. I got a chicken puppet and a lamb puppet. And I do the voices while Robin gives her talk. All of which is to say, yes. had I known Robin Price Glasser when I was five, I might have had children. There you go. Thank you. Yes. And a perfect explanation, yes. if I might. The warmth, the love, the ease with which she conducts herself with children, I have actually never seen. It's not like I just haven't seen it in my family. I have never seen it before. Now, I know you could talk about Robin all night. I could, so Just actually, to avoid having to talk you know, about yourself. No, 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 it's not that. It's that I'm actually in love with Robin Price Glasser, and we're both very happily married, but we've talked about the fact that if it doesn't work out, we are out of here. So she's in love with Robin. She couldn't get to the end of her own book. So many revelations, so early in the evening. Let's go back to Danny sure, and course. Maeve, right. if we could. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, because Danny is your first person narrator, and that's an unusual position for you to take, um, or not completely unheard of for you, but unusual. And I wondered why you'd chosen him to be our guide through this story, when his sister... I mean, Danny, in a way, is a man who lets women do for him. Yes. You know, his Have wife, you ever his met sister... One of those? No, not really. Oh, uh, now, let me think. Yes, quite a lot. <laughs> Um, and he is one of those yeah. Yeah, majority He's... of men, sorry, because there are a lot of men here um, who aren't like that, I'm sure. Um, uh, so he, he is one of those men, and Maeve, on the other hand, is just an extraordinary, complicated woman who pretty much sacrifices everything for her brother. Yes, discuss. Discuss. Um... A lot of people have asked me why Maeve wasn't the narrator of the book. Maeve would never tell her own story. That wouldn't be interesting to her. But it's also so much better to be able to look at someone sometimes than to see inside of them. And so we get to really see Maeve in action through Danny's eyes. And she is magnificent. And, and Danny was such a snap for me as a first-person narrator because... He is so 
smart and affable and charming, and everybody likes him, and everybody finds him attractive and fusses over him and does things for him. And he has no idea. He's like a cork being carried along by the ocean who has never realized that there is an ocean there. He's just thinking of himself as the almighty cork. And so when people say, how is it possible that you can write so convincingly from the first person point of view of a man? I think, seriously? <laughs> um, I, really, I really do know him and love him in so many different people in my life. But he was a very, very accessible character for me. You know, everyone who loves your books, which is at least this room full and many Just, millions of people beyond, right. um, loves the way your characters are so tangible, so real, so human. I know that might sound like a contradiction. As opposed to... As right. opposed to, you know, all of the things they, they might be in a lesser writer's hands. Um, and I know it sounds like a sort of bland question, but the thing that, you know, you feel reading your books is where does she, how does she notice so much? How does she notice so much and manage to make it so succinct? I mean, Bel Canto was, was an absolute, you know, uh, chorus of brilliance in that way, in the way that each character, tiny little minor players, you sum them up in, in a matter of words and, and they were real and they were alive instantly. So do you watch people all the time? And, and, you know, are you watching me now? Are you actually listening to what I'm saying? Or are you thinking, look, that one eye is a bit angry where the other one is less so. And I wonder what happened to her when she was five. I do wonder. <laughs> um, you know what I immediately think of when you say that is I had a writing teacher in college, the wonderful, wonderful novelist Alan Gerganis. And I remember Alan having us read Chekhov. And Alan said, any character who comes into a Chekhov story is fully realized. So if the postman walks in and hands a letter to the main character, that postman is a person. And you have to think of him fully as a life, even if he only gets one sentence in the short story. And, and boy, am I no Chekhov. But I can trace that very nice compliment back to Alan Gerganis saying that. And one of the things that really changed in the two drafts of this book, originally there's the story of Danny and Maeve, originally the first time I wrote the book, who get thrown out. Isn't that incredibly sad and awful that these two very, very rich people have to fend for themselves and now terrible, are quite terrible poor. story. Now they're quite poor and it's really very dramatic. And when I was reading the book, I thought, well, what about all the women who worked for them? What about all those women who didn't have any money? And they lost their jobs, too. They all get fired when Danny and Maeve get thrown out. One of them gets fired earlier. So what about them? And, and it was a very good lesson for me. I had forgotten about them. I had just let them be walk-on characters. So when I wrote the book a second time, Sandy and Jocelyn and Fluffy became pretty much as important as Danny and Maeve and Andrea. They, they all got lifted up and we got to find out what happened to them. So do you have a sense, because they do all get to play their part, do you have a sense when you, when you write a book that you want us to be in some way 
morally uplifted by it. I don't no, mean that in a, not a strict of, sense. No. But you're not, you're not a, you know, I don't go to you and think I'm going to leave this book feeling really miserable, but it's going to be worth the pain. I go to you thinking I'm going to believe in human nature again by the, you know, by the time I finish this, this, this novel. And I think that is very much a sort of trademark of yours, that that you restore our faith in humanity rather than strip it away and go, yeah, we're really, really bad. You know, you'd be the opposite of a dystopian. I'm, um, I'm, yeah, I'm not so dystopian. Um, you asked me a minute ago, do I watch other people very carefully because this ties into it. It's that I like people. I don't watch people carefully because I'm a novelist and I'm trying to figure out what I might mine from their experience. I am genuinely interested in people. I enjoy them, um, almost all of them. So, yes, and, um, and the whole thing about optimism, which people ask me, you know, are you an optimistic person? Well, I'm an optimistic person in that I, I do believe in inherent good and I, I believe that there are many things that are going to work out. On the other hand, we're all going to die and we're all going to suffer terrible. I know, I'm sorry. Um, I, I think the planet is pretty much toast. Um, you know, so, so there's, there's the, yeah, right. The balance, that's the ba therein lies the balance, right? We're all going, um, but this is what we've got. But there's no need to harp on about it, because we know it's going to happen. <laughs> but is, is, is there a sense also, I mean, you know, thinking of the political climate at the moment, which you, you joked about at the moment, but, you know, I know you sit and look at aghast in your own country, yeah, as, as sure. we, we do here. You know, and, and, you know, I'm sure lots of people say, you know, do you ever feel like writing about the political situation and so on? That actually writing books like yours is a political statement in a way. Whoops. <laughs> is a political statement in a way. It's a kind of reassertion of other uh, rights and beliefs and, and, you know, reinforcing the idea of empathy and morality and listening to other, and learning from other people and forgiveness and all of those things that seem to be very much not on the menu in, in the world. And it's a very interesting thing because people say, oh, well, your books are unrealistic. They're, you know, it's a fairy tale, it's too hopeful, everyone's too nice. That's so fascinating to me because if I was writing books about serial killers, people would say, well, that's the truth. That really rings true. I don't know any serial killers. <laughs> I, I would have to just be making them up out of whole cloth. But in fact, everyone in my life is kind. And, and I think that for most of you, if you think about the people who are really surrounding you, the people that you actually know, chances are you love most of them. Chances are most of them are kind. That's just not so crazy. If they weren't, you probably wouldn't be that close to them, unless, of course, it was your brother or sister. <laughs> In, <laughs> In which, which case, case. <laughs> you couldn't get rid of them, and then you'd have a novel. Um, it doesn't seem Pollyannish or um, unrealistic to populate a world with people 
who are good and yet still they suffer, as we all have, as we all will. But there's not an element of sort of pure cold evil, although the stepmother is pretty bad. Andrea is pretty bad. Um, that's the stepmother. Um, but even with Andrea, you undercut it, you give her a bit part at the end that, that you know, in some way, you know, offers a tiny little bit of possibility for sympathy. Pity. Uh, pity towards her. Uh, and in fact, that's not the only, um, you know, what we might call a cliche that you undercut because, of course, Danny sets out to follow in his father's footsteps. We haven't talked about his father at all and we must remember to talk about him. Cyril. Note to self, Cyril, Mm -hmm. must discuss. (laughs) Okay, that's there. Um, But Danny sets out to follow in Cyril's footsteps, you know, as a property entrepreneur and it's, it's very refreshing to see this sort of unashamedly capitalist character in a novel who's also actually a good person. You know, so often that can be just the shorthand, can't it, for a bad egg, you know, especially as he gives up a political, uh, a medical career to go and, you know, buy up properties and become a, he's a landlord, you know, I mean, that's... It's very Dickensian. Yes, very Dickensian. So is undercutting um, those sorts of cliches, like the wicked stepmother and the evil property tycoon, important to you in, in, in a way of you know, forcing us to look deeper? Um, I think I actually played on the evil stepmother trope, um, which is a shame because I have the nicest stepmother, probably the person, I mean, definitely in the top five of my life is my stepmother, who I adore. And I was doing an interview, actually, and my stepmother was visiting from California. Is that why you made this stepmother really good-looking? Just going back to your (laughs) earlier point. (laughs) No, but but whoever was interviewing me on the phone said, well, have you told your stepmother about this book? And I was like, no, she's here. She's downstairs. She's totally fine. The idea that this could be my stepmother seems very funny. So, yes, I did play into the hand of the wicked stepmother. As far as the evil property manager, it, it, it was two things. One, Danny loves business. And his sister forces him to go to medical school for a whole host of reasons, and he does it. And as soon as he is a doctor, he leaves and he does what he wants to do. But he really likes business. And part of that is I opened this bookshop with a friend of mine eight years ago, and I have always thought of myself as an artist, you know, the sensitive creative type. I've never had anything to do with business. I love business. (laughs) I have had such a good time having a business. And I am the person who reads the contracts and who goes to the landlord and does the negotiations. Um, Those kinds of things are percentages, you know, margins. Those are very interesting to me. I had no idea. So I liked the idea of having a character who is interested in business at a moment that I am interested in business. I liked the idea of trying to figure out how someone with no money at all could make money. That was very, very hard for me to figure out. And, and I did, which is he gets a tip in medical school that there's going to be a new building built and he kind of calculates where the only place the building could likely be and then he buys a parking lot. And I found out that you can buy a piece of property 
with a six-month clause on it where neither party can back out. So you have six months to pay. So the trick is, if you have no money, you can buy it with the six-month clause and then sell it before that time is up, pay the person you bought the parking lot from the small amount of money that you paid for it, and then sell it for a small fortune. And that's excellent. I'm I know. Tomorrow to go look for a parking lot. I'm not sure um, it works quite the same way in this country. Oh, probably not. Sadly, no. Sorry. Um, as with um, as with Bel Canto, another of the things. In fact, not as with Bel Canto. As with almost all of your novels, as far as I can remember, uh, with the Dutch House, you also explore again what happens when people are thrown together, a bunch of people are thrown together through circumstance. And it's actually, I was thinking about it, something that's you know, quite the staple of genre novels, but not necessarily of literary fiction as you write it. So what is it about that scenario that continues to call you back? You know, it's funny because uh, when I was writing Commonwealth, I, I had really seen this play out in my own work. Group of strangers thrown together, stuck. So I thought, okay, maybe if I get to the heart of this, why am I so interested in this? Perhaps, having not gone to therapy, but sort of the at-home version of therapy, uh, maybe it's because my parents got divorced and my mother married someone with four children, and so there, me and my sister and the four children, and we were stuck together. That must be why I keep coming back to this over and over again. So maybe if I write the story that is closer to the truth, I will free myself of this. And I think actually I have, because the Dutch House is a book of people who are thrown together and say, I want nothing to do with you. I am gone. I will never see you again. And it's, it's really the opposite. I mean, the whole thing is flipped on its head. So I'm, I'm feeling kind of liberated. I'm feeling free. Do you think if you'd gone into therapy that you wouldn't have become the novelist you've become? I have no idea. If I had had children and gone into therapy, <laughs> the world just would be a imagine, different. Imagine, imagine the possibilities. <laughs> I don't know. You know, the the one thing that I know for sure, I and this is a little off topic, but I never had any mental dexterity. I never ever thought for a minute I could have it all. Before that was even a phrase that people threw around about women. You know, you can have a family and have a career. I'm not a very energetic person. I don't have a, I don't have a broad bandwidth. I can do one thing. I'm like one of those little girls who's taken off to be a gymnast at the age of three, and that's all she can do. Spend her whole life tumbling and doing cartwheels, and that's it. Um, so very, very early on, like earliest childhood, I thought, you get to pick. Now, I don't mean other people, I mean just me. You could have a family or you could be a writer. I never thought I could do both. And it seemed like a very clear choice. I wanted to be a writer. But you didn't think you could be a businesswoman and be a writer, did you? And you were, and you discovered that, no, that actually, you can absolutely do that. Actually, I never thought about that one way or the other. You no, know, but what I mean is you think that you have just one skill and you've only just admitted five mm -hmm. minutes ago that you have two great skills, business and... Right, writing. but I never turned that down. I never saw that as my binary choice. Mm. Well, I could either be, and which, you know, I, I, if I had thought of it, I probably would have thought of it that way. I could be an artist or I could be a business person. 
Um, I just really wanted to write books. I, that was really all I wanted to do. And ever? I, ever. From what age? From the age beyond remembering. And it is the only truly interesting thing about me. I, <laughs> no, it's true. So few people know positively what they want to do with their life, stick with it from square one, and then actually get to do that thing. It puts me in such a rare subset and makes me the luckiest person in the world. And I think that it has a lot to do with the fact that I am, I am a cheerful, happy person. Why shouldn't I be? I got to do exactly what I wanted to do with my life. Do you have any of your childhood writing, I presume, that you wrote? No, because I am so not a pack rat. Basically, if it's not moving and I can't eat it, I throw it away. <laughs> um, you know, it's like the first, the first draft of The Dutch House, which was an entirely different novel. It doesn't exist. I just deleted it. And it's, it's well, you not... Delete, gone forever, gone. nowhere. Gone. Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Not even to look at and no. thank God I was bad once, but I'm no. so great today. No. 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 Because I could be hit by a train tonight. And then you might find that manuscript. And publish it. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> um, just on that subject a little bit more, you know, Anne Patchett, the writer, has, has adoring fans across the globe who expect her to be kind and insightful and empathetic and imaginative and, you know, the maybe pressure. a little bit naughty, but just a little bit, you know, nothing offensive. Um, and, and I just wonder if there's another you, that that's you and, and you said, of, so maybe another skill of yours might be drama, that you act and patch it when you set off out into the world. I, I'm just wondering if the rest of your life is very Anne Patchetty. No, the rest of my life is very Anne Van Devender-ish. Okay. Um, so my name is Anne Van Devender. Nice to meet you. Um, I, I married a Van Devender, and I changed my name about two years into the marriage because I bought a bottle of vitamin D that made me throw up every day at two o'clock. I took the pill at eight o'clock in the morning and at two o'clock in the afternoon I threw up. And about the fourth day, I realized it was the bottle of vitamin D. So I took it back to the vitamin store. I had the receipt. And the woman said, we're happy to give you your money back, but we need you to fill out this form. And I filled out the form, and she looked at it, and she said, I won the bet. And I said, what was the bet? And she said, I bet the other people in the store that you were Ann Patchett, and they said you weren't, so I got you to write your name on this piece of paper. <laughs> and now we know that you're her. And I said, thank you so much. And I drove to the Social Security, well, I went home, I got my marriage license, I drove to the Social Security office, I changed my name, I drove to the driver's license place, I changed my name, I called the credit bureau, I changed my name. My, this is the best part of the story. So my husband comes home and he says, what did you do today? And I said, I changed my name. And he said, <laughs> to what? <laughs> 
My husband, who to this day has never once introduced me to anyone as Anne Van Devender. <laughs> this is my wife, Anne Patchett. What is the point if you can't remember what my name is? Um, but I've been Anne Van Devender for a long time now, and I actually think of myself as Anne Van Devender. And who's Anne Patchett then? Ann Patchett Patch is, is the global brand. Um, Ann Patchett is, you know, the person who publishes the books. And, and Ann Van Devender is the person who makes dinner and does the laundry and walks the dog and takes care of the neighbor's dogs. Who is Ann Van Devender? Recently, my husband was shining his shoes before he left the house to go to work. He's a doctor. And he stuck his head in my office as he was walking out the door, and he said, I dropped a tin of shoe polish on the rug. Gotta go. <laughs> and I spent about four hours removing black shoe polish from the carpet. And I thought, whenever people say to me, how is it that you managed to stay so normal, so humble? You really seem to have your feet on the ground. And I think it's because I'm removing damn shoe polish <laughs> from carpet all afternoon. But that four, because I read somewhere that you write for four hours a day and then you rustle together, you know, dinner and, you know. And in fact, you even described yourself as a complete housewife, which I think is just completely bonkers. But anyway, I am a wife who stays in the house four for most hours, of the day. Four hours, yeah, writing your best-selling novels. Uh, but anyway, four hours, the same amount of time you spent taking the shoe polish off. Four <laughs> hours is apparently how much time you spend a day. Is there an average? Is that, is that what you do? You and set aside four hours a day? And no, no, nothing you know, like how that. How does it work? No, nothing how like that the... at all. So, when I, so I make up a book in my head. Can I just ask you guys a question, show of hands? How many of you, this is going to be two-part, how many of you know what our town is? If I say our town, okay. And then of you people who know what I'm talking about, how many of you have read or seen? Not many. Okay, that's good to know. Thank you very much. Um, so I make up a book in my head. In this case, it has something to do with our town. And, and I'm just kind of wondering how it's going to translate. I make up a book in my head, that takes a long time, maybe a year, maybe two years, and while I am removing shoe polish from the carpet, That's I am amazing. thinking mm -hmm. about these people in, in the book that I'm going to write. Then when I start to write the book, that's the very worst part of the whole process, when it goes from head to paper, then I work for about 10 minutes a day, seriously. <laughs> It's horrifying. But just because you can't, I can't get it out. bear it. Because the thing in my head is so good, and then I start to write, and it's so bad, and I get really discouraged, I feel stupid and talentless, and then I go clean the oven. And, and slowly over time, you cannot imagine. I used to smoke. You did not. I, oh, I did. Oh, I'd never have imagined that. Did you used to smoke? Oh, I used to smoke. Do okay. I sound like I used to smoke? <laughs> <laughs> so I used to write, and then I would stop, and I would have a cigarette, and I loved it. It was fantastic. Yeah. I loved to smoke. But then I quit smoking, because everybody quits smoking, right? It's one of the things it's a good about, idea. It's, it's one good of the things thing. about smoking. You have to quit. And, but you can't leave the house. I can't leave the house when I write. Once I leave the house, the day's toast. It never comes back. And I can't smoke, and I can't leave the house, so I clean the fridge. Right? In between, yeah. In between. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, it's 10 minutes, and then it's 20 minutes, and then it's an hour. 
then at some point it's four hours, but by the end of a book, I can stay at my desk for 14 hours. I, I am just right there, I don't need to stand up. But it's a long way, so maybe if you do the like income averaging from 10 minutes to 14 hours, you wind up somewhere around four hours. And which is the most exciting moment for you? The moment you sort of go, the end, yeah, you know, like they one. do in movies? Or, <laughs> or the one after Alexandra has gone, this is marvelous. No, There's no. not a thing I want to do to change it. No, 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 no. That means, I mean, with all due respect, um, that's nothing. It, it's, um, <laughs> do you know it's what? Harsh. You know what? I love the book in my head. The book in my head is the best book you've ever read. It's astonishing. The R-Town book, you couldn't even believe how good this book is. When I'm writing it, it is my whole life. It is my whole heart. And then I finish it and I send it to my friends and they give me their notes and their edits and I work and work and work, send it to another friend, send it to another friend. I get it to where it is as good as I can possibly get it and I hand it in and I, I get those edits and I do the copy edit and I read the page proof and it's good then for about one week and then it's dead. It's totally gone. And so by the time this comes out and it will get good reviews and it will get awful reviews and it won't make any difference because I'm off, I'm gone. But surely, is it true that Tom Hanks is going to read the audio It's done, I've got it. Oh, God, it's but surely done. you're going to listen to that. I will, and you know that's really interesting because I've never listened, I've never read one of my books again and I've never listened to any of them, but I will listen to this because I'm so excited and so grateful. And how did that happen? <coughs> did he just like go, hey? Um, no, actually, this is crazy. I know Tom, I know Tom Hanks. Hanks. Um, and the reason that I know Anne Tom Patchett or the other Anne? Um, Anne Patchett knows Tom Hanks. <laughs> um, so he had a collection of short stories called Uncommon Type mm -hmm. that came out about a year and a half ago. Probably five people sent me a copy of the galley. I'm sure that my office looks like your office, which is just galleys floor to ceiling on every surface. And I had all these copies of Uncommon Type. I thought, I'm not going to read a book of short stories written by a movie star. That's crazy. And then one night, it was 9 o'clock, I had finished the novel that I was reading. I thought, I just want to read one more thing. I want to read a story. I go to my office, I'm looking around, I pick up Tom Hanks' book, I read it. I love it. I totally love the book. It's so me. And the stories, are, they're very, they're very old-fashioned, uh, they're very structured, they're, they're incredibly satisfying, well-shaped. I love this book. And I blurb it. And, um, and I said something extremely clever, which is finding out that Tom Hanks is a great short story writer is sort of like discovering that Alice Monroe is the greatest actress of our time. <laughs> and um, I sent it to his publisher, and then his publisher asked me to come to Washington, D.C. to interview him on stage. And just before we were going on, he said, how long should we be on? And the person who was putting the show on said, you know, about an hour. He said, what if we're having fun? Can we stay on longer? And, Did you and, fall in love with him there and then? And I said, no, I mean, you know, I, I mean, actually, 
I have a real house rule to not fall in love with other people's husbands. It's one of those things. It's all right to fall in love. You can just not act on it. <laughs> no, no, it's like nowhere. I just don't do that. Um, so he, they said, yeah, you know, you can stay on for as long as you want. We stayed on for two and a half hours. Wow. And boy, that was a show. This, no, stop now, because the audience is feeling slightly cheated. Oh, no. They had you and Tom Hanks for two and a half hours, and they've had me. It's, and, it's not and the same thing. And what was so thing. great, we each had an interpreter for the deaf. And, and Tom Hanks kept um, swearing, which I won't do in, we're in, in you know, God is love. Uh, but every time he would lean over, whatever, whatever curse he used, he would lean over and say it very slowly to the interpreter. It was so hysterical. Um, he was fantastic. But he wanted to open a bookshop in Los Angeles. His wife, Rita Wilson, is a singer-songwriter. They come to Nashville all the time. They start coming to the bookstore. Uh, you know, I see him. They're lovely. And it's time for an audio book. And I think, I know a movie star. And so I email him, and I said, N he likes baseball. I said, no pitches, no hits. I don't think you're going to do this, language. but I Beautiful. know, in fact, for sure you won't do this if I don't ask you. So here I am, I'm going to ask you, will you do the audiobook? And he wrote back in about five minutes and he said, oh, that sounds like so much fun. Send me the manuscript and I'll see if I relate to the character. And he did. Um, Every man would. We've discussed why earlier, haven't uh, we? Yeah, and, and he made the <laughs> Let's audiobook. talk to Rita about that. But also... Um, and, you know, and this is one of those things that may never, ever happen, but apparently he is making a movie out of Commonwealth for HBO. Oh my goodness, that's a great idea. So we'll see. How exciting. And you know what? I said to him, for those of you who have read Commonwealth, will you be the father, will you be Fix, or will you be Leo Posen, the, uh, the sexy older novelist? And he said, I will be whichever part is better. So accommodating. You know, if they made a movie of your life, which I'm sure they will eventually, then I think... What a nap that Laura would be. Linney should play you, and then I everyone would find your life riveting, even if it wasn't. I hear that all the time. Yeah. People say Laura yeah. Linney. It's like your yeah. sister's from another mister. Um, yes, except <laughs> I have a friend who's a really good friend of Laura Linney's, and I said to her once, you know, people tell me all the time, I look like Laura Linney, and she said, oh my God, <laughs> in your dreams you look like Laura Linney. <laughs> She's a good friend. So now I don't, I don't think I look like Laura Linney But anymore. I've used up an inordinate amount of this evening's time, and I know that this audience is packed full of people who'd I'd like to talk to you and ask you a question. So, in fact, I shouldn't have said like to talk to you because sometimes people do that. They just talk for five minutes and then I have to go, what's the question? And they go, well, there wasn't really one. Um, but we've only got 10 minutes left. So, please, um, if you'd like to ask a question, will you put up your hand? There's a gentleman down there who put up his hand straight away. So, I think he deserves to be first. And then I'll come. I think there was a hand there and there was one down I'm there. really good since I have the book show and I facilitate so many of the events. I always say, if you are the crazy person who's going to stand up and just be crazy, I want you to hold on to that part of yourself really, really tight. <laughs> <laughs> Stay in your chair. I'm hoping somebody asks you about the bookshop, by the way, because I've run out of time to. Okay. But, but, but let's see what this gentleman would like to ask. I, Hello. I um, went into a vacuum after reading Bel Canto. Um, I was rather devastated by those young people who had been brought up in poverty and they 
had a talent which was brought out and then cut short. Don't give anything away. Have you, have you ever come across people in that situation which gave you the insight into writing about them? In particular, the one character who was invisible. Um, no, I haven't. And yet it makes, of course, absolute sense. I mean, it, it's not that I would have to have met someone who has had that particular experience because I believe that's true of everyone. I believe that everyone has, has a talent, a strength, a gift, if it's the ability to run, the ability to sing, the ability to work a proof in algebra. I mean, if, if someone focuses on you and someone brings you up and, and brings that out in you, I think that's possible for everyone. So the answer is, I guess, maybe yes, by meeting everyone I've met that person. Thank you very much for your question. And um, there's someone right at the back and then I'll come to you there on the left. Uh, it's another question about Bel Canto. Uh, without trying to give the ending away for people who haven't read it, um, were you at any point tempted to change the fate of the Japanese businessman? Um, no, I, no, I wasn't. From the get-go, absolutely from the get-go. Because I am somebody who knows what the whole plot is going to be before I start, and I think it's very important not to give way to one's sentimentality. The thing is, when you're a novelist, you make the world. You make all the rules, and then you set the world in motion, and you can't change the rules. So if something is set in motion, you have to see it through, no matter whether or not you don't like it. Thank you. There's a, this lady here. Thanks. I did want to ask about the bookshop. I wanted to ask how you feel about Amazon opening in the mall opposite and what, you know, you're not a fortune whatever soothsayer, but, you know, how, what impact do you think it will have? Um, how do I feel about Amazon mm. opening a real bookstore right mm. across the street from mm. my bookstore? Mm. <laughs> Which I've visited. <laughs> Actually, not great. Um, but <laughs> I love it now when people say, how is your bookshop doing? And I say, it's doing great. You want to know how good it is? They've come to kill us. <laughs> and that's really what it is. Do you We're, think it's that bad? Do you take it that personally? Yeah, you think it's an accident? No, they've come to kill us. And, um, but they won't, and we'll be fine. And, and I'm, I'm really, it's sort of Pollyanna-ish of me, but I actually think it would be fine. And the reason is, Amazon's always been here. And in many ways, I'm glad that Amazon is here because the most important thing is that people read. And there are people all over the world who are able to get books because of Amazon because they don't have a bookshop. So I'm not saying that Amazon shouldn't exist. We should be able to coexist. Um, but, but they do have a desire, I think, to stomp on anything that is doing well. But if you like Amazon and you use Amazon, it's not as if you've never heard of it before. The reason that you buy a book on Amazon is because you don't want to go to the mall and find a parking place. So I'm thinking that the people who are buying their books on Amazon will continue, and maybe some people who are shopping in the mall will stop in and buy a book. But 
do you have those Amazon stores here? No, I don't think so. I've never seen them. Um, they're, they're, really, they're really interesting. Um, all the books are face out. The thing that they want to sell you in the Amazon store is the Alexa, which I actually think is the Antichrist. I mean, it's like, <laughs> let me bring a listening device into my home. Um, they want to sell you the Amazon Prime membership, and they want to sell you a Kindle. So that's, that's what they're going for. And the books then, are just decoration. Literally, all the books they sell are face out. So that's really fun. You know, we have loads of books, so they're spine out. Mm. They sell the top 100 bestsellers. They sell the books that are the five-star reviews. And then there's a little section in the store of the best-selling items. So there'll be like a shower curtain and a wrench set. <laughs> no, stop um, And also, it's interesting... Are you going to take that... I'm going to sell wrench sets. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's also interesting that if you go into the Amazon store, the book, this book is full price. So if you order it online, it's discounted. If you buy it in the store, it's full price, unless you buy the Prime membership. So they're not interested in selling you the book. They're interested Mm. in selling you the Prime Prime membership. I, can I think that was a fulsome answer. A I'm going to turn to the right here. There's a, a lady here, and then somebody else just put their hand up down there, and somebody right at the back, and I think that's probably going to be it. So uh, just remind me if I... The one, two, three, there, yeah. Hello, <laughs> so. it's been amazing to hear you speak. Uh, my favourite novel of yours is State of Wonder. Thanks. And the reason for that is it's so beautifully structured. It's so cleverly put together. So I, I want to have a, a sense from you of how you create such a nuanced and complicated plot. Do you have an even bigger brain than I think you have, or do you have loads of post-it notes all over your mood board? How do you fit those jigsaw pieces together? I really do it all in my head, and I don't take notes. And the reason is, once I write something down, I get very attached to it, and I start to think that it has to go in the book. I'm, you know, it makes me sentimental. But if I just think about things, then I can also forget them. And the analogy that I use is if we meet at a party and we start talking and we like each other and we say we have some things in common. We, we both have sisters. I like your shoes. You like my shoes, whatever. And we decide that we're going to go have coffee together. And I don't know your middle name and I don't know if you're married and I don't know if you have kids. But over time, when you develop a friendship, You slowly learn these things. I may know your birthday, I then may forget your birthday. And then I may have to ask you again. And and that's the way it is when I put together a novel. It would seem almost like beginning a friendship and taking notes on the friendship, which would just be creepy and weird. Um, So I try to just stay open and think, if it's worth sticking, it sticks, and if it's not, I'll let it pass. Thank you. Um, oh, gosh. Well, they're um, close. We yeah, can take these two. Yeah, we, we, maybe we'll just take these two questions at the same time. That <laughs> might help. I mean, not obviously speaking over each other, but if we can maybe um, pass the microphone to the lady behind you afterwards. Thank you. Sure. Um, I just wanted to ask, uh, how long do you mull over um, your characters in defining them? Or how, how, how long do you have to kind of sit with them in your head before they're fully formed, and does it change as, the, as you start writing? I mean, does, it, that, does that evolve as you're writing? In most of the evolution, what? I'm going to get the other question as well, and I'm going to remember that one for you, and then you're going to answer them both in Wait, one Wait, you're day. layering? Yeah, I'm layering, yeah, it's oh, a wow. test. 
It's a test. I just wanted to ask, how, if it's all in your head, how do you remember it so well? Well, okay. again, so characters, okay. Characters, layering. All right, that all is kind head. of, it is true. There it's are connected questions. But again, it goes back to meeting people. How do I remember any of it? How do any of us remember any of the things that we learn about people? You just kind of keep going over it again and again and again and again. And, and things do change, but most of the changes in the characters in my mind happen before I start to write. And I will say, going back to State of Wonder, that was a book and maybe the only book that I've ever written that I did not know the end um, while I was writing it. I did not know if the missing person would be found or not. And the whole time I was thinking, yes, no, yes, no. And what my writing friends and I do, we provide a service for one another called novel therapy, where you don't ask somebody to read the book you're working on, but you get on the phone and you tell them all of your problems and then they give you an answer. So part of it can be talking it through with someone else. Just on the topic of developing your characters, I, I talked to um, Robert, I interviewed Robert Harris today. Oh, I saw him, yes, right. Yes, and he said, um, he said, writers who tell you that, you know, well, I just started writing it and then the characters just oh, took that. over and they that. told their own story. And he said that that's absolute nonsense. Absolute he said, nonsense. if that happens, it's a disaster and, and that it, you know, it should never happen if you're writing. But a lot of people say that it never happens to you. They don't take over. One of the worst, oh, I can't even remember where this was, but one of my worst moments as a writer up on stage was I was having this conversation and I said, that would be like schizophrenia, right? If you just had the voices in your head telling mm. you what to do. And a woman stood up and said, how dare you belittle schizophrenics in that way? Don't you realize this is a terrible disease? Sorry, um, sorry, 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 sorry. So oh, I never know how to answer that anymore. I had my great answer and now it's out the window. Well, may, you have to say bipolar now for a start. No, I don't think we can make, no, no there's no, no there's no. no. But okay. the, here, right. this is we'll the answer. On. They don't write themselves. The car doesn't drive itself, although now maybe soon the car will be driving itself. <laughs> but the no. characters still won't but be writing the, you themselves. Know, I'm just, this is my job. I make it up. And just finally, the question at the end, no pressure. Um, thank you very much, first of all, for a really beautiful discussion and a lovely evening. Um, I, I've really enjoyed hearing about how um, your characters restore um, faith in humanity. That's such a lovely thing to say. And I wondered, who are your favourite writers and what are some of your favourite novels, Anne? Great question. Oh, it is, and it's such a good question to end on. And I am crazy about Colson Whitehead. I, I just think there's no one better right now. And the Nickel Boys... I've been reading Colson since uh, The Intuitionist, which is one of my all-time favorite books. And he just, you want to talk about somebody who keeps going in different directions, keeps reinventing himself, is so awake and open and curious about the world. I think he's brilliant. Um, What's I'm, the book that Maeve and her mother have just finished housekeeping, reading? Housekeeping, housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. And I love Marilyn Robinson. And I love Elizabeth Stroud. Um, I love Margaret Atwood, um, Donna Tartt, and Miley Malloy. Uh, there, it, is, it is a wonderful, wonderful time 
to be a writer, Zadie Smith, and I'll walk off stage and I'll, Edwige Dondekott, I'm going to be giving a reading in two weeks with Edwige Dondekott, which just brings my heart open. Um, there are so many good books right now and we won't get into history. And if that was the last question, now may I say something? Yes, please do. Okay. What do you mean, as if you haven't already? Right, exactly. <laughs> now I've been sitting here quietly all night. <laughs> this thing that we have just done, I do this thing all the time, all the time, in your chair, because this is my job having a bookstore. And it is this new bizarre trend among writers that everybody wants to be interviewed. So when I go on my 27 city book tour in the States, I have refused to be interviewed. And I am going to take the stage alone every single night. And the reason is, as a bookshop owner, I know how much work it is to do this and to prepare. And I'm so grateful to you. Oh my God, Anne Patchett, you are the most perfect. No, <laughs> seriously. It is such a pleasure, and you made this so easy. And, and I'm sitting here thinking... I'm getting really embarrassed. No, no, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, why did I say that I was going to do this alone? This is so much nicer. <laughs> um, but it's... It's a ton of work, and I know how much work it is, and I'm grateful, so thank you. Do you know what? I can't believe that you said that. I'm completely overcome. Every single second of it has been a pleasure, including all the books I read, not for work, but just because I wanted to. And talking to you tonight has been one of the high points of my extremely long life. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. Anne Paget. she's amazing. Thank you.